Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Compliance Guy. Today is Wednesday, January 11th in the great year, or hopefully what will be the great year of 2023. So with it being Wednesday, that means it's time for our newest segment, segment two of J Squared with the one, the only Jordan Johnson. What's up, buddy? What's going on, guys? Everything's going well. It's uh, you know, 2023. It's it's fast and furious, like you said. It's it's definitely it's shaping up to be something. I don't know what it's shaping up to be, but it is shaping up to be something. It is. There's no doubt. Um, the aggressiveness of the government. Um, even though our segment isn't focused on regulatory compliance and health law, um, you know what's going on in in those aspects of healthcare drives operations drives economics finances and really the shape of the market and the shape of the market from a business standpoint is problematic and i think that's putting it mildly is that fair uh, that is absolutely that's absolutely fair right now. I think the the business aspect in healthcare is now front and center um, as being what is driving the inefficiencies, the redundant costs, the uh, quality actually down. The and so that's really the focus um, right now. You know, one of my favorite things about LinkedIn, if if you can. If you can get past some of the trolls that are out there, um, LinkedIn is such a powerful business tool. <clears throat> For me, it's it's been a game changer, right? Uh, it's allowed me to meet people like yourself and Eric Rubenstein and to build relationships with people that I sort of had these superficial relationships in the past with people like Terry Fletcher and Christine Hall and, you know, uh, somebody who works for you, Jennifer McNamara, very, you know, very young, smart lady, uh, you know, making her way in the coding world. Right. <clears throat> but <clears throat> for me, I look at LinkedIn because I get an opportunity. Look, I can't, I can't know everything. Nobody can. But what I get to do is get a little bit of information on a whole lot of different topics that allow me to engage with subject matter experts, industry leaders, thought leaders, right? Like yourself, who are constantly monitoring the business of medicine. And, you know, you have your niche in oncology, radiology, those areas, but you also have a very broad understanding of the business of medicine which is extremely important one of the first areas that i wanted to focus on with you jordan i want to talk about physician employment 
I want to talk about physician employment contracts. I mean, there's so many things for us to talk about. We'll talk about nurse strikes and, you know, uh, you know, the, the state of reimbursement and stuff like that. But I want to talk about physician contracts because there, you, you sent me a staggering number. And I guess for me, I, I, I always, I always thought that it was a high number. But until you actually see it coming from somebody else where the information sourced, you're like, holy crap. 52% of physicians are now employed. And I'm going to stop there because I want you to talk about where are they employed and why do you think more than 50% of all practicing physicians are now W-2 employees? So, yeah, no, I think this is a it's a very alarming and concerning trend. And it really started about, we started, it started popping up on people's radar about two years ago as we approached the 50%. Now we're over 50%. And there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of reasons for it. I think um, operations, uh, operational costs, the cost to maintain EMRs and EHRs, um, hospitals, hospital m as is probably the largest mergers and acquisitions are probably the largest driver of, uh, physician employment um, into these areas as they come into different ge geographic areas and, and really scoop up uh, the physicians, whether it be primary care all the way up to specialist. Um, and this is done for really, really not to necessarily decrease costs, but but to control um, market share, to control physician or to control patient volume, to control uh, patient referrals, referral patterns. And so I think at a surface level scratch, um, it appeared to be a good idea. It appeared to be um, something that that was was good. And what we're seeing from physicians now, and, and we really saw COVID as the catalyst of this, is once you sign that physician employment contract, you need to understand really what you're signing and what all comes along with it in that contract. Um, you know, most of these guys, it's it's literally fair, fair market value. You get a salary just like everybody else. Um, but just, you know, just like everybody else, when there's when there's trouble financially for for an institution or a system, um, when cuts come, they always come to the employed staff first. Well, guess what? You, you as a physician are no longer exempt to that. So when they make those cuts, um, they cut, they withhold, you know, increases just like they do for for regular staff, they do this for physicians. So I think, again, at a scratching the surface, it was a good idea. Now we're starting to see also, you know, how does it really relate to quality? How does it really relate to um, value? I mean, if I'm a physician and I get paid the same, regardless of whether I see five patients or 15 patients, or, you know, I think you start to have some issues there. So we're seeing the needle kind of swing back the other way now to physicians that are like, hold on, this may not have been the best idea, but they're not necessarily swinging back to, I just want to be a solo independent physician. They're looking for larger national groups that span across state lines of like specialties um, to become these, these larger groups where they hold these, this, this, a larger leverage that they can use. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, so over my career, you know, and I'll, I'll go back into the late nineties when I was with a certain health, health system. Okay. Corporation. And 
<clears throat> one of the things that was mind-boggling to me coming into the organization were these contracts that I mean they were they were crazy, right? Now, this was the this this was back during when like FICOR and Med Partners and Tenet Physician Services and HCA Physician Services were all vying for these providers and they were buying up all of these physician groups, right? Or they were buying up all of these individual physician providers. They were pulling in a lot of specialists really at that time back in like 98 through 2000 and one and it was mind-boggling to me to see the type of contracts that were being issued to physicians uh that had zero accountability for the physicians from a revenue generation standpoint where they were literally to your point it didn't matter whether they saw five patients in a day or they saw 50 patients in a day their compensation wasn't going to change. And you started very quickly to analyze the revenues of these providers, you know, versus the expense of employing them. And I mean, you know, we had this one pulmonologist, true story, had this pulmonologist. Um, and he was, he was being given a base salary of like $365,000 a year. I think this was in 1998 or 99. And when we looked at what he was producing, he was seeing like seven or eight patients a day. And his revenues that he was generating was, you know, maybe a hundred and, you know, $180,000. I mean, it was, it was, ridiculous and i remember sitting down with the provider you know because i was brought in to kind of you know start cleaning some things up and i remember saying to the provider i need you to start seeing more patients i need you to start producing if we're paying you you know let's call it four hundred thousand dollars a year i need you generating 1.2 million dollars a year i need you generating 1.5 million dollars a year i need these numbers up this sucker looked at me and he said, I'm not doing anything differently because contractually, I don't have to. I don't have to work any harder than what my contract says I have to work. And guess what? My contract doesn't say I have to meet any threshold. And I was prepared for this individual because folks had warned me about this uh, particular person. And I happened to show up with a termination letter and his final paycheck. And I said, well, I understand your position. And I hope that you'll understand mine because it's strictly a dollars and cents at this point. And I look back on this, you know, because I was a lot younger, a lot thinner. I had better head of head, a better head of hair. <laughs> and I didn't have to grow a beard to hide all the imperfections in my face. Um, but, you know, he looked at me, he goes, you can't do that. And I said, of course I can. Determination. It's, it's a right to work state. If you're not willing to negotiate with me, if you're not willing to play ball, I got to strike you out. I wish you all the best of luck. But 
this is your final termination. Well, what about my patients? I said, what about them? You see seven patients a day. I'm pretty sure we can transition them to another pulmonologist in the group. It won't be a problem. You know, he quickly came back and said, I'd like for us to uh, have a conversation about maybe restructuring my contract. Happy to do it, Doc. But it shouldn't have to come to that, right? And, you know, and, and that was that was really sort of me at that point wanting to not be in the operations space because I, I it, it just, I didn't like it, right? I don't like firing people. I don't like having those conversations. I like being a compliance officer, man. I like telling people, you shouldn't do that. And here are all the reasons why. There you <laughs> but, go. You know, I, here's the other thing that I, and tell me what your thoughts are on this, Jordan. I think a lot of physicians become employees because they think the grass is greener on the other side. And what they fail to recognize is that once you're an employee, you lose your autonomy. You are now beholden to your employer who says you will have this type of chair in your reception area. You will have this type. Uh, you will have these magazines only. You will buy from this vendor. You will use these uh, biosimilars as opposed to the more expensive be, you know, drugs because we have, you know, we, we could get higher margins on these things, better rebates, whatever it is. And essentially, the doctor sells their soul for a consistent paycheck. But to your point, they're an employee and they run the risk of layoffs. Go ahead, take it away. No, I mean, they lose their bargaining, you know, any of their bargaining, their autonomy. Um, and it's all in the name of of consolidation, optimization, margin optimization. Uh, they lose all of that. And I think oftentimes, you know, to your point, what's in that contract uh, becomes important. So do, and most physicians don't know um, it's not their specialty to ne negotiate a physician employment contract. Um, and when these large hospitals and networks have the upper hand leverage, they're apt to um, not necessarily negotiate with you because they could actually, you know, block you out um, because they have the numbers. The numbers are in their favor. So I think it's important to understand what those physician employment contracts and the terms of those contracts are. And then also understand what's driving some of this. You know, we know there's shortages in certain geographic areas and that's going to continue. So if you're an employed physician, <clears throat> be careful because, you know, they do have some autonomy to be able to dictate where you go and where you'll cover. So, look, you're right. Um, there, there are shortages in specific areas, right? But what people aren't recognizing is that we're actually having shortages, not just in the rural areas. We have urban area shortages. We have shortages in inner cities. Baltimore, Washington, D.C., New York City. I mean, I know people go, New York City? Yeah, New Jersey, you know, in certain states like New Jersey. You know, I have <clears throat> a doctor who's down in Vineland. And, you know, he is the only specialist of his kind within like a 75-mile radius. And, but, and, and, you know, the interesting thing about that is what does it do to his numbers? It makes him an outlier. So he's automatically an, a target of the government. 
And it doesn't matter that you're an independent practitioner. They're looking at your NPI number. So even if you're employed by a large organization, you're still vulnerable to attacks, right? No, absolutely. Um, yeah. So recruitment is a problem, right? I agree with you 100%. Recruitment's a problem because, you know, the days of being able to offer all of these kind of incredible perk packages to physicians has gone away because we have to meet what? Fair market value. Our contracts, you know, have to be commercially reasonable, right? So you 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 run into a situation where you have multiple employers vying for the same physician, but the differentiator between them is not the perks package. It's not the money because they could all probably meet the same standard if they have to. It comes down to the culture. No, I think that's, I think you hit the nail on the head. And we know um, from looking at the data that physicians, you know, we can't fill residency, uh, residency seats and fellowship spots for an astronomical number of specialties. And we've talked about that. It's causing a shortage now, you know, uh, we could sit here and pontificate, you know, what's what's the answer to it? The answer is obviously if people aren't going into medicine, it's not increase your enrollment. Um, it's, you know, we get into to supervision issues. We get into advanced care practitioners. We get into a lot of things. But now this has spilled over to your point into into other clinical roles that we we see, you know, shortages for. And, and now we see some of these um, controversial you know, strikes, which I know we'll talk about, but why this is occurring. And it's almost this cascade snowball effect we're starting to see. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things <clears throat> that you bring up was the inability to get people to enroll in medical school. And there was this article, I don't know if you read it, but it was like two months ago. And I just happened to come across, I forget where I was reading it, one of the independent news sources that I like to read, because they're not opinions. You know, I don't want somebody's opinion. Just give me the facts and I'll make my own decisions on, you know, whether or not I think it's a problem or not. Right. Um, they were talking about the fact that they the, the medical colleges were struggling on their enrollment numbers to the point where they were now considering lowering the requirements for entry into a medical program. They were going to lower the requirements on the MCAT and they were going to basically dumb down the requirements to get into a medical school. And, you know, we always used to, you know, make jokes, right? About, you know, wh what do you call the person who graduated last in their medical class? doctor well here's the problem if they're all at the bottom of their class we're in trouble now you're creating I mean, we that. already rank number 11 you know we already rank i'm sorry we already rank number 11 in first world countries in our healthcare programs i mean so to your point I think this is, yeah. well this is the crossroads we're at where we're going to have to make a decision are we only trying and this is what we've done you know historically are we only trying to create a fix for the short term? Are we committed to a long-term fix? If it's a short-term fix, exactly what you said, you know, you lower the requirements, you get more people in, the, that has long-term consequences um, for, for standard of care, quality of care, value of care, you know, three, four, five, ten 10 years down the road. 
Um, so I think that's really what we need to focus on is what is our fix? What are we looking at? Is it the traditional um, kick the can down the road, short band-aid fix, or are we really going to look at a long-term solution? And that's where we're at right now. And I agree with you. I don't think the answer is um, lowering, lowering requirements, lowering standards, uh, because that does have an impact. So I want to, I want to transition over to talking about strikes because you brought it up. Um, what's going on in the world of nursing? Cause that's another area where we have significant shortages. Whew, nursing is very interesting right now. Hot topic. We do have the strikes going on in, in New York and you know, it's, it's interesting. And I'll say this as a clinician, because the first thing people say is I cannot believe, um, the nurses are, are going to strike. What about the patients? And my answer to that is, I can't believe that we didn't take the warning signs and what the nurses were saying seriously um, over the past three and five years that it has to get to this. So why does it have to get to the point? And I feel like that's the only time that we actually get um, get a resolution or a solution or the right people at the table of is when the patients are um, in danger of not being cared for. And it shouldn't get to that point, but you've got 7,000 nurses, they're striking. Um, yes, there's some pay involved. And I'll, I'll throw a, a side note here in pay. So there's been several reports that have come out since COVID about what hospitals were having to pay um, nursing staff. And can you imagine being a CEO at a hospital or any executive at a hospital and your nursing rates, 30 to $40 an hour. That's what you're paying the nurses. And so we have hospitals like, and I'll give you an example, example, Roper St. Francis in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, they have been, you know, quoted and tracked as having to pay some nurses, certain nurses up to 180 and $200 an hour. So you know that another nurse is making 180 and $200 an hour to do the same job you're doing. So this creates, yes, pay is some of it. Um, but I think we're almost over the pay hump as being the lead. Now it's the quality issue and it's this 14 to one ratio, the 15 to one ratio that becomes an issue for these nurses. Why? Because of the court cases we've seen that no longer does, you know, respond eat superior uh, necessarily prevail where the master speaks for the servant you can actually go after the individual nurse now. So what nurses are thinking is, yeah. is you're putting me in the environment and the culture that's going to lead to a fail or a break or an accident or a sentinel event. I'm not sure I want to take that risk. Such great points, right? So I want to dissect this one <laughs> because I have from, from, from the beginning of time, right? Look, like you, I'm a former hospital administrator. And the way during my tenure that I was able to retain my staff was by treating them the way that I wanted to be treated, you know, by listening to their concerns, hearing their concerns, and collaborating with them to find a middle ground, right? You know, I tell people all the time, when you go into a negotiation, you go in with pie in the sky dreams, right? You you shoot for a star and you hope that you can land on the moon. And we always, whenever something came up, we always were able to sit down and find a resolution. It didn't always happen on the first meeting, but at least the representatives of the different departments 
when they would come in and we would have our, our monthly meetings or quarterly meetings and they would present to me what is going on and what they're looking for and et cetera, I would always say to them, it's a great jumping off point. It's a great starting point. I hear you. I'm listening. I understand your concerns. Let me work on it. Let me get with my team in administration and let us come back to the table at some point, as opposed to some of these CEOs that are hardliners who draw a line in the sand and they say, no, it's not how you run a business. You can't say no to everything. You, you've got to bend. But here's the thing. I love when patients who were the vocal ones, not all patients, but vocal ones during COVID who were trashing physicians and trashing nurses and other healthcare professionals because of their beliefs in not wanting to get a vaccination. I was fully vaccinated, so nobody could call me an anti-vaxxer. But these individuals who were on the front lines knew something, and they had their reasons. And these, these people who are heroes, who always run towards the problems, were now being, you know, made out to be the pariahs. They were the crazy ones. They were the, the devil in disguise. They were the bad people. And now, isn't it funny how the chickens have come home to roost? Because the nurses are like, you have created an unsustainable work situation for me. You have created a situation where I and I alone can face all of the liability if a mistake is made. And you know what? No, I'm sorry. The same people that demonized me now are saying they need me and how dare I? No, y'all are going to have to atone for what transpired over the last two and a half years. And you know what? I can't fault them. Nope. I think uh, the red flags were there. And if, if people, and we did as, you know, <laughs> most chose to ignore that, um, they were mentioning the ratios, the what was safe, what was not, and people ignored it. And I think yeah. here's why people ignored it. You got to understand to what you said, clinical staff, for the most part, and I say this as a clinician, uh, and I'll speak for nurses, I'll speak for most clinical staff, they're able to operate in a, in a very interesting mindset where they're focused on truly caring for the patient. So the BS and the bureaucracy, oftentimes they block out. And so what a, administration often becomes accustomed to doing is, well, if they can do it with a 10 to one ratio and they have had no problems, let's bump it to an 11 or a 12. And then the nurses perform and then the clinical staff performs. And it, it turns into this repetitive cycle where just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that is a problem. And clinical staff is often mistaken um, just because they can take it. They must be able to, they must either like it or be able to perform in a safe environment. And that is absolutely not the case. We call that the stress strain model, and it's used in metallurgy where basically something flexes to a given point and will absolutely adjust. But there is a fracture point, and I think we're at that fracture point. And so then what happens to that model is a lot of our senior nurses and clinical staff have left. So all these beautiful productivity models a lot of these places had were based on the performance of somebody that had been there 15, 20 years. Well, now it takes three and four people that are new grads to even come close to performing 
And that also creates a whole nother dynamic of, of danger and safety. And that's what these nurses are saying. And we're, they control, if people don't think, you know, and, and we say nurses, yes, there's other other clinical staff, the radiologic technologists, the lab staff, and, and we say nurses because they do make up 60% or more of the, the healthcare workforce. Um, but that's how you get the most attention the fastest is when these come these people come to the front lines and stand up and I agree with you I don't disagree I don't disagree that they're not standing up for the right reasons yeah listen you and I both spent unfortunately some some time in the hospital last year um you had um a funky little thing going on um and, and and you posted pictures about it. Oh, you know? yeah. So I mean it's not like I'm I'm violating HIPAA. Yeah. Um, but you know, I you know, I had a couple of different surgeries last year. And on my my last surgery that I had, um I guess it was in July of 2022. Um, you know, I had to spend three days in the hospital, and I remember like I would go three, four, five hours at a time without, with, with no one coming in to check on me. Okay. Now it's not that I needed it. I had a call button. If I had a problem, I could push my call button. Now my wife will tell you, I'm not one of those patients. I don't push my call button. And I piss the nurses off because a lot of times they'll come in and they'll, you know, they'll be like, how you feeling? And I'll be like, I'm hurting. And they'll be like, why didn't you push a button? And I'm like, because I know you have a lot of patients on your, your, you know, your, uh, schedule and some, if not all are way more sick than what I am. And I figured at some point you get to me and they're like, no, you don't understand. We want to stay on top of your pain so that we don't have to give you a higher dosage to break through. We want to maintain it. We want to control your pain. And, you know, I'd say, yeah, 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 I get it. I, I understand. And, you know, but, when I'd asked the nurses, I was like, you know, n not for any other reason than I'm just curious. I haven't seen anybody in like three or four hours. What's going on? Because I'm used to the old days. Every hour on the hour, the nurse was coming in, even if it was just to poke his or her head into the room to say, how are you doing? Do you need anything? And then every half hour, you know, the um, nursing tech would poke their head in. And it's the same thing with the nursing techs. Three, four hours would go by. And, you know, the, the one nurse said to me, here's the deal. I have 10 patients that I am alone responsible for. And I have some patients that are immobile. They're bedridden. They're hooked up to all kinds of machines. They can't get out of bed. I have to, you know, deal with the bedpans. I have to deal with their urinals. I have to deal with this. I have to Patients that are on six, seven, eight, nine, ten different medications, I got to pull their meds. And they're like, it's just me for 10 patients. And I'm like, how is that possible? And they're like, talk to our administration. So you know what? People should have seen this coming. And I'm sure I'm going to anger some people who listen to this podcast. And that's okay. Because the truth hurts sometimes. No, and it shouldn't take us, you know, reaching out. I know we've got our time here, but reaching out to the CEO of a hospital, yep. which I did as an inpatient, um, did exactly like you, only to learn that the CEO of the hospital was a nurse themselves years prior that they had forgotten, you know, and you're delivering that message of nursing shortages and staffing within their own hospital. Um, 
yet they're supposed to maintain a, you know, a happy face like they have it under control. So I agree with you. I think that's a good one to, uh, to wrap this episode of J squared up. Yeah, on. man. Yeah. Well, listen, as always, I can't thank y'all enough for tuning in, logging on and hanging out with me. Uh, this was our second installment of J squared. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, this is an opportunity for us to talk about the intersection where the business of medicine and regulatory compliance meet and to explore areas that some either don't want to or are afraid to take on as a topic. We are neither afraid nor are we unwilling to tackle any topic that has validity and that has a potential for impact on our industry. Right, to that point, Sean, I mean, I know we're going to sign off here, but I actually got an email the other yep. day about that and saying, listen, we love what you guys are saying, but we can't say that kind of stuff. And obviously for anon anonymity, we're going to keep things confidential. But if you truly have a feeling or a topic that you want us to at least tackle, explore or look at, shoot us an email, shoot us an email, uh, reach out to us and that we'd be happy to at least look at it. Absolutely. All right, so this is going to be the last episode of this week as I will be heading out to Phoenix, Arizona uh, a little bit later on today uh, where I'll be at the NSC HBC conference uh, with my very good friends, Terry Fletcher, Amanda Wesh, David Zetter, and a whole host of other characters. So. We'll be back next Monday with a Monday roundtable. So until then, remember, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.